Now it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett until 6 tonight. Today, Venezuela wins a UK court decision in its battle to get its gold back. More on the second referendum in New Caledonia. Analysis of the travesty of the Old Bailey for Julian Assange. La Nina and El Nino. Why increased police powers are not COVID safe and how to resist. And then, of course, first up we have... Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jan Lister, when Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his quality tabloid, The Wapping Sin, continues his promotion day after day of the pejorative Dan government all over P1 and page after page inside. One of the very, very clever headlines this week, The Shady Bunch. (laughs) Get it? Subtle, but so clever. So very, very clever. With a feature article inside by its neutral election analyst, Jeff Footedmouth. Yes, yes, that's the same Jeff Footed Mouth who used to be big, caring, business class party supremo, but now a Lord Rupert of Wapping independent observer who independently, neutrally, wrote the socialist government was lying. Anathema to poor Principal Jeff. And truth will always prevail, he said, and... Yes, yes, this is the same Jeff Footed Mouth who promised us our electricity and gas would be almost free after he privatised the state-owned power utilities. Melbourne's transport problems would be over once he signed off on the privately owned City Link, which has had its owner, Transfer Your Wealth Urban, laughing all the way to the bank ever since. Closing public hospitals would work wonders for our health care. Privatising government and local government jobs would save us trillions, a litany of promises that the private sector running the state would be nirvana within paradise. Yet, despite this balanced reporting, former big supremo little Kebby Rod for the workers reckons we need a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into Lord Rupert's empire. For, for goodness sake, if the aphorism, any publicity is good publicity, is accurate, the pejorative Dan and the team's fortunes are soaring by the day. On State Big Supremos, one of the strangest pieces of censorship we've struck in a long, long time. In the Mummers and the Puppers hit Creek Alley, a, f- a line that mentions Maguire, and Maguire da, 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 was going to quote the whole line, but realised it could be deemed a clear double entendre, and I didn't want to go there. Check it out for yourself if you want, although there is one safer line, and Maguire just to catch and fire, although not necessarily safe in the context of the other two. Maguire gets three mentions, but apparently it's now illegal in New South Wales to play Creek Alley without deleting or bleeping out the name Maguire. How strange. Honest answer here, listener. If ten days ago we'd said which of these people were having sex and who wasn't, Jamie Puker, Mariah Carey and New South Wales big caring business class party supremo Gladys bury it if I can, I'll bet 100% of us would have said and 100% of us would have been wrong, presuming Mariah's telling the truth. Still, some people deserve each other. Vox Pop on the ABC asking people's opinions on the corruption evidence, and one bloke said, Until yesterday, I'd never heard of her. And I thought, there's a classic argument for a selective franchise. 
and in the election for Big Suprema up in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, the caring business class party challenger must have been wrapped when her own party referred her for investigation by the election commission in the middle of the campaign. That'll do their cause the world a good. Okay, some people, Jamie, Mariah, Gladys, Maguire, deserve each other, and then some don't deserve each other. Although... Given the unmasked, packed-in-together maniacs cheering and rallying who vote for him, maybe they do. Whatever, it's obvious the dear baby Jesus looked lovingly on the Rose Garden gathering to announce bringing the law of the dear baby to the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Supreme Court because obviously the Holy Spirit descended on and blessed the gathering by giving so many of them the China virus. I now think God gave me the China virus as a blessing, best blessing ever, ever. Their big supremo Donald Trump or the poor displayed his Christian humility and innate modesty as the statement revealed he realizes there is another God in the image of Donald, image of himself. Don't be afraid, best pandemic ever. The vice presidential so-called debate was ruined by so few interruptions, meaning we could often hear what they were saying. Like Kamala harassed the poor, declaring there couldn't be a more fundamental difference between Donald Trump or the poor and Joe Biden capital than on the economy. And I thought, well, yeah, I think there could be a more fundamental difference, but seeing they're bidding to run the biggest, greatest little economic order of them all nation on behalf of its caring business class practitioners, we won't be holding our collective breaths. And then Mike Dollins and Pence said gatherings like the Rose Garden Supreme Court nomination health disaster, no distancing or masks, showed how Donald and the team which is Donald and Donald, respected the freedom of the American people. We trust the American people. Trust them, obviously, to show absolute disregard for themselves and those around them, their freedom to catch the China virus. Perhaps like Donald, hoping for this gift from God, the sacred freedom and trust gift, to be laid up in a hospital bed or carried out in a box. And that pretty much sums up that debate. Donald would have been encouraged by the overwhelming support in New Zealand for big supremo Jacinta Ardern to their support, given by his own admission he has done much more than Jacinta to control the China virus, getting the balance so spot on between the balance sheets of Wall Street and the covered with a sheet cause your life's in the balance. Biggest win ever, ever. Uh, Jacinta, who? Who? No, me, me, I will have the biggest win ever, ever. We can but imagine how many more US old people would have suffered, would have died, but for Donald's unswerving commitment to control the China virus. Donald's nomination in that garden party health disaster, Amy Catholic Barrett, if you're pregnant, bear it, told the endorsement hearing it was not a judge's role to determine social matters, but to leave those issues to the politicians admirable sentiments. Although until her wise words, I hadn't realised that religious education, accessible health for everyone, abortion, same-sex marriage, workers' rights and related matters were not social issues. Like when Amy ruled that overtime payments were illegal and a crushing penalty on caring employers, she knew that wasn't a social issue, for instance, but a legal matter. Legal attack on the freedom of caring employers not to pay overtime.
In the not paying much at all department, where well, we suspect in the US of those not getting their now illegal overtime in whatever jurisdiction Amy ruled are not getting paid much at all, but here, see the ACTU has agreed caring employers who inadvertently underpay workers, not steal, not wage theft, will not face civil penalties, leading us to a very difficult week that was quiz. In what percentage of cases when caring employers are sprung will they declare the underpayment was inadvertent? A, 0%, B, 33%, or C, 100%? Tough one. So a small clue. Caring employers always do not wage theft, always do not steal, always inadvertent. It's just pure chance they never manage to overpay workers inadvertently. A statistical miracle. And as poor ailing Jamie Puker was finally released from the virtual witness box and allowed to recuperate from the ordeal on his luxury yacht, enjoying his luxury lifestyle off Tahiti, and called for a bit of cathartic comfort food, You slave, fetch me a junket! His personal appointment as a crook casino director, former ALP Supremo Andrew, dim memory not true, utilised the proverbial wooden spoon he carried into the witness box to dig himself deeper and deeper into the proverbial with every answer, pointing out effectively he had absolutely no idea what was happening in the company, nor the slightest idea what he was doing there. A strong witness proving what we said last week, that if the Inquisition is to determine whether Jamie, Andrew and the gang are fit and proper persons to run a casino, then judging on the quality and morals of those running casinos around the world, they are as fit and proper as you can get. Qualify 100%. Finally, it would be remiss of us to coin a cliché, not to mention this week the 50th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster, not a subject for satire or humour of any sort, but an event those of us around at the time remember vividly, although not as vividly as the workers on site who survived, who have carried the scars for half a century. 35 dead, 18 injured, but the toll never mentions the psychiatric, the mental impact on the workforce, which was the first responder, which fought through the twisted remains and fire and smoke to do what they could for their comrades, to be gathered in the locked car park the following Tuesday, praised for their efforts and sacked on the spot. There were suicides. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin editorialised this week it was the point when unions increased their fight for safe working conditions. Forget whether that's true or, true or not. This is the same Lord Rupert of Wapping who attacks workers incessantly, particularly the construction union, when they take action over safety issues. When construction restarted 18 months later, the John Holland refused to re-employ the shop steward, leading to a nine-week strike which saw him reinstated. Today, that strike would be illegal. The union and the individual workers drag before capitalist law and receive huge fines, if not jail. Fifty years of going backwards in many areas of industrial relations. But today and this week, we remember the comrades who lived and died through a tragic industrial disaster. Good afternoon. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. I'm talking now with Dr. Tim Henderson. Across the continent to the UK, where the Appeals Court 
has ruled in favour of President Nicolas Maduro's government. He's battled to mm. repatriate Venezuela's gold, 1.6 billion, 31 tonnes of gold held at the Bank of England. Mm. What's the story behind the decision? The story there is that Venezuela, which has had in the past a very successful oil industry and arguably the biggest reserves in the world, depending on how you measure the very crude forms of oil, whether it's worth extracting. Um, you know, in, in, in any case, at least on par, if not greater than the Saudi reserves, Venezuela has had a lot of money, basically, and it, you know, had this problem of deciding where to place it. Now, when they came into conflict with the US, when President Chavez came to power and started doing genuinely independent um, reforms, basically, um, more than 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, um, the question of where to place all those resources arose, and he was advised by his political mentor, the late Fidel Castro, that you know, be careful, don't place all your reserves in in New York banks. So Chavez proceeded in the early 2000s to diversify where reserves were held and place a lot of it in gold instead of U.S. dollars and put some of it in investment banks in Russia and Iran, around the place. And part of that um, process was to have some gold held in safekeeping in the Bank of England. Well, so this is part of the, the large reserves of Venezuela, which has had its even its oil industry crippled by the economic war that the U.S. has been carrying out because they've been dependent on imported parts and so on. And if, if refineries break down, you know, they can't produce oil and so on. Uh, they can't produce refined products. I mean, so anyway, part of the reserves were held in England, and when the latest manoeuvre against the Maduro government came about, where they effectively the US encouraged politician Juan Guaido to proclaim himself president of the of Venezuela without any election, without any incident election after the presidential election of a few years ago when Maduro was turned uh, with a vote. And by the way, Maduro was returned in that presidential election uh, despite diminished support because precisely because the Venezuelan opposition was split about whether to participate or not. We've got the same coming up in December this year, um, in, in just a few weeks, that the opposition is once again split over the National Assembly election, which will mean probably that there's going to be, you know, the, the Maduro and the Chavistas will win again, effectively, because the opposition is split, basically. This has been going on for most of the last two decades, basically. Anyway, getting back to England. So uh, something like a billion dollars in gold was held by the Bank of England. When the Venezuelan government tried to reclaim it, the Bank of England said, look, the British government now recognises this guy, Guaido, as the president of Venezuela, you know, so you can't... We can't give it to you. So an entirely artificial argument, you know. Whatever um, the allies of the U.S. were were saying, or the U.S. and its and hangers on, like they were saying about it, like they were saying about. You recall when they appointed some Syrian government in exile at one stage and pretended that the Syrian government didn't exist, and a whole lot of people sort of went along with that, including the Australian government, and recognised this, you know, the legitimate sort of government of the people of Syria based in Turkey or whatever. The same sort of thing happened with Guaido. Well, it seems that the the British courts, in a moment of unusual clarity, have said, no, this is an artificial argument. The government of Venezuela is recognised at the United Nations and so on, and it's entitled to get its gold back from the Bank of England. So, so there's been a reversal, basically, in British policy 
de-recognise the government and effectively steal uh, its assets and hold them or or make them available to opposition um, players for further coups. I mean, that's what's happened. With the US, of course, has an even larger amount of Venezuelan assets because Venezuela had a very large fuel operation in the US called Citgo, a company, and the US under Trump simply stole or froze, whatever you want to call it, all of those assets and is allocating those assets to its chosen opposition figures to try and mount coups against the uh, against the Maduro government. Sorry, just to say that there's been a, a reversal, maybe a temporary reversal for the British government. What happens now? Well, it has to be seen if um, the British government has a plan B, whether they can find some other way. If not, they may be forced to hand over the um, Venezuela's assets to the government of Venezuela, surprisingly enough. Okay, well, you've got 31 tonnes of gold. How's it going to get to Venezuela when the US have got blockades or sanctions going? Oh, well, that's another good question, isn't it? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> but um, uh, the the US blockade, which they call action, really, I think, the better term is neutral coercive measures. Um, it's an economic siege, basically, which is they're running on large parts of the world these days. It's not um, on a number of occasions. We've seen a couple of, of Iranian tankers, for example, taking fuel and other chemicals components to help restart Venezuela's refineries in recent times. So that's been a, a notable feature of international solidarity. You know that Venezuela and Iran have developed this close relationship. It was developed under Chavez, but uh, Iran itself under blockade has been able to send ships to Venezuela in, in breach of the, the siege, the US attempt to impose a siege on Venezuela. So it's not to say that the US is um, incapable of acts of piracy. It's possible that they could carry out acts of piracy. I mean, this has happened also with you recall there was a couple of boats that were uh, of fuel that were headed from from Iran to Syria, and one of them was, I think, intercepted by the British at Gibraltar in on the in the Western Mediterranean. So there is a certain amount of piracy going on in support of the the economic war that's going on these days uh, against a number of countries, including Venezuela and Iran and Syria and Cuba and um, and some others. Tim, just to spend a couple of minutes on the farce that is Trump's presidency, particularly the past couple of weeks. Hmm. Well, it's a, I think the, the biggest farce really is the, the so-called elections in the US. I mean, what choice do people have? Most of the signals I've seen coming from the, the Biden-Harris camp have been reassurances to the the big corporate oligarchy in the U.S. and to the war machine, basically, that, first of all, Biden has sworn not to try and get a universal health cover scheme, which both the Bill Clinton and the Obama administration tried but failed. So that's a big letdown for any sort of popular politics there. And secondly, uh, Biden and Harris have, well, for example, Harris said that... Uh, Biden is not going to stop fracking, so that's a big blow to environmental movement in the U.S., and uh, that he's going to maintain the, the sieges on Iran and 
Venezuela and Cuba. So, I mean, uh, a lot of it's more of the same, you know. And I think a lot of the the angst from North American liberals against Trump are really because he's just so ugly, basically. I mean, he is an affront to the self-image of North American liberals. Um, and that's one reason why there's such a lot of powerful feelings. But if you look at, you know, the issues of war, privatisation, the failure to develop decent universal health uh, system, environmental issues like fracking, even the deportation of uh, so-called undocumented immigrants from Latin America and so on, the differences narrow down tremendously. And so what does that say about North American democracy? That's the thing that strikes me as the, the big lesson for all this. Also, the fear of many people I've spoken to and also people aren't saying it is a, the fear of a coup and what the, the far right will do if Trump wins or if Trump loses. Well, that's true that there's a lot of polarisation in the US. I think that's one one um, factor. I mean, that's maybe... I'm not sure why that would be such a, a terror for people outside the US. I think one of the problems of outsiders, and we're all outsiders, you, know, you and I are never going to have a vote in the US, basically, And um, but how is it going to affect us outside the US? And in, in some respects, although it might be uh, you know, into a, a civil war in the US, let's say, or you know, a huge disruption and, and internal violence already happens to a fair degree, is much more of a problem for US citizens and others. You know, the fact that the US has projected its its psychopathy effectively around the world might be a relief to other people. Basically, I mean, this is a, a real politics thing that I think we should consider. That why should we be thinking that we're having a vote in in US politics? It, it to the extent that it affects us, it's not the same way that it affects US people. Basically. So, but you're right that there's there's um, tremendous polarisation in the in the US, but it's really in terms of the um, the big issues. I, I don't think it's really reflects um, an actual huge political difference between the major parties. They're both controlled by a big oligarchy that wants the same sorts of thing. And it is indeed thanks to Dr. Jim Henderson. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Continuing now with the interview with researcher and journalist Nick McClellan, analysing the recent second referendum vote in New Caledonia, which the vote was 53.26% to remain in the French Republic, as opposed to the pro-independence vote of 46.74%. The question of who has the right to vote... And the other is 85% of the people voted, which is up 4% from 2018. First, who has the right to vote in an election like we've just had? It's really complex, and it's been a matter of, of debate ever since the 1980s. You know, many Indigenous Kanak feel that as the colonised people, they should determine the future of the country. So they land. That's what many believe, and that they should be determining what happens for the future, whether it be independent or whether to stay with France. But going back to the 80s, the independence movement made a strategic decision that they would work with people they dubbed the victims of history, and those basically are long-term residents 
of New Caledonia, people who've been born there, who've grown up there over many generations. And New Caledonia is like Australia. It was a settler colonial colony. It was a prison originally in 1853 when France first took it over, just like uh, Australia was a prison for Britain. Um, it had, in the late 1890s, uh, a major program of settlement where people, uh, the colonial government at the time brought settlers from France to steal the land of the indigenous Kanak people. Going on later, from the 1920s onwards, the major industry of mining, and particularly nickel mining, saw a need for labour, and so France brought indentured labourers from Indochina, pretty much in slave-like conditions in some cases, certainly under indenture, very poor conditions. And so the FLNKS has said for nearly 40 years, we recognise that the people who came here as settlers, as prisoners, as indentured labourers who were born here, whose family have been here for generations, they are New Caledonians and we must work together to build the country. But they've always argued that more recent French migrants shouldn't have the vote because there's lots of soldiers, lots of public servants, lots of business people who arrive, sometimes, you know, over 10 or more years, but sometimes just on two or three-year contracts. So there's always been a battle over who can vote. And the French system is bizarre where there are three different electoral roles for people in New Caledonia. And this is governed by the French courts, so it's very much the colonial power has authority over the electoral system. The first electoral role is for all institutions uh, in France. So the French National Assembly, the French Senate, the European Union Parliament, local municipal councils. So anyone of French nationality can vote for those. Many people don't, but many people in New Caledonia, Canucks, have the right to vote for the European Union. And many of them say, of course, that's bizarre. We're in the South Pacific. We're not part of Europe. The second electoral role, and this was one of the great successes of the Namir Accord, was to restrict voting for the three provincial assemblies and the local congress. So there's a separate electoral role for the local political institutions, and there's a cut-off date basically going back to late 1990s, so people who uh, may be resident there, but they can't vote for the local political institutions unless you're a really long-term settler. And the third role is for the referendum, and it's a different role. Once again, there are restrictions basically going back to the mid-1990s as to who can vote. So there are tens of thousands of French nationals who live in New Caledonia but can't vote for the local political institutions. But because of generations of migration, of settlement, just like Australia, just like New Zealand, just like Guam, just like Hawaii, the indigenous population has been a minority in its own land. The Kanak leadership and other supporters in all ethnic communities say we believe that nationhood would allow us to live together given that history um, of colonisation, of uh, indentured labour, of prisons and so on. And the vote from 81% to 85, how did they get it up further? One of the significant shifts was the increase in uh, the number of people who abstained last time. Voting is not compulsory in the French system um, for any elections, um, unlike Australia. Part of the challenge for any political campaign, be it elections or a referendum, is to get out the vote, pretty much like the Americans as well, as we can see at the moment. Abstention last time, despite a high turnout for the referendum, the first referendum in November 2018, and about 33,000 people who were registered to vote uh, for the first referendum didn't actually turn out. The difference 
between winning and losing last time was 18,000 votes. The final vote um, last time, uh, 43% of people voted for independence and 56 against. Now, that seems like a, a pretty clear victory, 18,000 votes more um, out of about 180,000. But people were stunned that the independence movement had done so well. Polling had predicted they'd get 25, 30%. Um, I interviewed a number of conservative politicians politicians just days before the referendum, weeks before the referendum, they were saying, oh yeah, it's going to be 70-30, we're going to crush these guys, the dream of independence is over, direct quote from uh, one of the leading conservative politicians. So when the FLNK has got 43%, they did it by mobilising a lot of young people and mobilising support in other communities, in the Walesian community, in the Kaldosh community up in the north and so on, um, and it really shocked people. So what we saw this time was a massive effort by both supporters and opponents of independence, the Yes campaign for independence, the No campaign to stay with France, to get out the vote. And there was a significant increase. So this time, another 13,819 people, I did these figures yesterday, nearly 14,000 people extra voted um, compared to last time. Some of those were new voters, a lot of young Canucks and young Malaysians turned 18, some of them were people who didn't vote last time. Some of them were people who'd been uh, restricted in getting proxy votes or weren't able to register properly and so on. But nearly 14,000 new votes. And the fundamental victory of the independence movement this time was the split amongst those 14,000. Only 2,700-odd went to the no vote, went to the supporters of France. More than 11,300 out of 14,000 new votes went to the independence movement. Huge victory for them, even though they lost. Uh, the final tally for the referendum was 53.2 to 46.7. So 53% of people want to stay with France. 46.7, it's up 3.4, want there. So in spite of the victory for the opponents of independence, everyone knows that slowly, slowly, the independence movement is moving towards a majority. And what they hope next time is not that they get 51%, but that a whole lot of people make the leap and that there's a significant victory in the third referendum, which uh, can be called for 2022. Just as an aside, Nick, were the Kanak people of New Caledonia part of the disgraceful blackbirding by the Australians to bring the people of the islands to virtual slave labour in Queensland? Yeah, some people. Most came from what's today Vanuatu, who was the New Hebrides in those days, and also from Solomon Islands, particularly from the province of Malaita. They made up the largest number from Vanuatu and Solomons. But there were people from New Caledonia, uh, which was a, a French colony from the 1850s onwards, particularly from Lifu, the outlying loyalty islands. Uh, Lifu, Uvea, Mare uh, are off the uh, east coast of the main uh, Grand Terre, the main island. Um, and a lot of people were taken from Lifu and brought to Queensland, particularly for the sugar industry. Um, and so I've interviewed people in Lifu uh, who are descendants of um, uh, indentured labourers who were taken back uh, sometime uh, as slaves to Queensland under indenture and then, um, you know, were kicked out at the time of uh, Australian Federation. People may not uh, know their history. We don't get to taught much in schools that one of the first acts of the federal parliament was the Pacific Island Labourers Act of 1901, which expelled the people who were known as Kanakas. The Melanesian workers had been brought 
under indenture to work in the cotton industry, in the sugar industry in Queensland and northern New South Wales. And thousands of Kanakas, uh, so-called, were thrown out um, at the time of federation under the White Australia policy. Many, however, survived and lived in Australia and uh, today are known as Australian South Sea Islanders. And the South Sea Islander community are non-Indigenous but have often intermarried with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in uh, places like Mackay, Rockhampton, Queensland, northern New South Wales. And so there's a strong campaign by the ASI, the Australian South Sea Islanders, to, to reconnect with families uh, across Melanesia. And there's a lot of family reunion programs being run to try and link up basically the stolen generation uh, who've lost some of the ties that they have with their original clans um, in parts of Melanesia. Did they finally get compensation for that dreadful time? There has been government legislation passed, both in um, Queensland and in, uh, at federal level, but uh, it hasn't been well implemented, and so there are still claims for um, um, compensation and reparations because of the historic loss. Many of the South Sea Islanders suffered, if, if it's possible, worse than Indigenous people because they weren't Indigenous. And so as from the 1960s onwards, particularly under the Whitlam government in the 1970s, there were new programs around land rights, around support for Aboriginal-run health and education services. The South Sea Islanders weren't eligible to take up uh, those benefits because they weren't Indigenous. Um, and yet often they were living uh, intermarried in the, in the communities, often living in very poor conditions, particularly in parts of Queensland. So it's been a long struggle for federal recognition and reparations. There's tragic histories to this, and uh, um, I've written about some stories about this. Um, you know, when people were kicked out in 1901, not everyone was taken back to their home island. Tanna, which is one of the southern islands um, in Vanuatu, they have stories of people who a boatload of Kanakas were taken back and just dumped on Tanna. Some of those were Solomon Islander heritage. There were also some Aboriginal children who were orphaned when the land was stolen in Queensland and they were adopted by Kanaka families. And so some Aboriginal children were taken back to uh, parts of Vanuatu and uh, raised in the Melanesian clans. And so people can, uh, you know, there's been a fascinating history of people trying to trace these roots. All of this was done informally. There's no paperwork about it, um, but it's, it's part of the, the legacies of colonialism. And this is really what the independence movement in New Caledonia is, is saying. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the economics of what's going to happen to the nickel industry. There's a lot of discussion about the strategic place of New Caledonia in the changing Asia-Pacific region. But a lot of people talk about dignity. A lot of people talk about transcending the legacies of colonialism and being proud of their heritage. And that's brought out a new generation of young people um, onto the streets, not just the older generation that fought during the battles of the 1980s that forged this creative Namir Accord that created a pathway to independence, but a young generation who've grown up over the last 20 years, 25 years, still want to maintain the struggle for independence. And thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. 3CR. Dr Alison Rynowski is the Vice President of Australians for War Powers Reform, a journalist, author and broadcaster, and a long-time active supporter of Julian Assange. 
Today, Alison is putting forward the proposal for a political solution to the Julian Assange persecution following the travesty that passes for British justice at the Old Bailey during September and ending on the 1st of October. Alison, the hearing was covered on my program here on 3CR, but for anyone else, unless connected in some way with actual support for Julian, both here and overseas, would be in the dark as to the farce of British justice at the Old Bailey due to the dearth of reporting. How do you assess the four weeks at the Old Bailey? I'm not sure where you've been getting your sources from, but I've been mainly following Craig Murray, who is a former British ambassador who has been going to the court every day. He's a friend of Julian's, and he's been able to sit in the court, which is a lot better than some people who've been trying to follow it from outside, because I understand that for whatever reason, the video and audio transmission to places outside the court, to other rooms uh, where people are trying to follow, is very patchy. It often drops out. Uh, it's hard to see. And a number of people, whether, I mean, some of us would suspect that this is intentional, but uh, whatever it is, the British court system doesn't seem to be able to cope very well with this sort of technology. So my main source has been reading Craig Murray every day. He has been in the court. Occasionally, he misses things, even though he's sitting there um, in the public gallery with very few other people, because, again, the audio system is faulty and sometimes he misses things. Um, The same applies to Julian, who is sitting in a glass box, as you will have heard, and at least this time, his glass box doesn't have a roof on it, which it did have when he was in the earlier course, but this one at the Old Bailey at least is open at the top, but if he wants to communicate with his lawyers who sit in front of him in benches, he has to bend down, would you believe, to an opening underneath his table or whatever he has and make gestures to them through this opening to let them know that he wants to communicate. I mean, if they were trying deliberately to make it as hard as possible, both for the public to understand what's going on and for Julian and his uh, legal team to communicate, they couldn't be doing a better job. Have you heard or seen any response by government officials here in Australia to what has been going on with Julian in that court over the past month. Has there been any comment? I have not seen any. Um, The last time anybody in government said anything uh, that I can recall, it was when the Prime Minister said um, he has to face the music, which is a fairly dismissive and certainly unsympathetic statement to make, particularly given, as I think we've discussed before, the effort to which they go for other people, like Kylie Moore Gilbert in Iran, or like some Australians who've been locked up in China, and so on. And I must say that if Julian was locked up in China, I think that they would be doing all, uh, and accused of espionage against the Chinese government, 
I think that they would be bending over backwards and running around in circles and making all sorts of loud noises, which they are not. I interviewed a, uh, a senior member of the opposition a couple of weeks ago about this, and he was dismissive as well. He said, when I made that kind of point to him about the difference between China and Britain, uh, he said, it's what Julian is getting is British justice and the British legal system is beyond reproach. <laughs> so either side of government, the opposition or the government itself, are distinctly unsympathetic to Julian. The only uh, interest that has been shown is by some of the independents uh, and some of the nationals, strangely enough, because as you know, there's a, a parliamentary friendship group that's been formed uh, by Andrew Wilkie, who's an independent from Tasmania. What's his name? The National Party, uh, George Christensen, who is a believer in, in national sovereignty. So he's, he's on Julian's side over all of this. They have formed a parliamentary friendship group. Andrew Wilkie went to London and saw a few people but as far as I can make out, they have had no effect, either on our government or the British government. And nobody that I can discern is making any loud noises at all about Julian's case. Alison, you've written that this extradition to the US is in breach of EU and UK law. Can you explain that? Yes, because the United Kingdom has a law that, that well, both the, and, and the European Union does as well, that does not allow extradition of citizens to countries that have the death penalty, right? Now, what the Americans will claim is that the death penalty is not being imposed on Julian. But that's not the point. The point is that, it, that in, in effect, 175 years in in jail doesn't make any difference whether you're executed or not. It amounts to the same thing. And they, uh, they would not themselves allow extradition to Britain for one of their citizens for espionage. You can bet your life they would not. So what's happening is that there's a very unequal application of law here to which both the, the European Union and the British uh, legal system should be objecting, and they're not. What, in fact, has been going on in the court, coming back to that for a minute, is that the judge or the magistrate who is sitting on this case, uh, Vanessa Beretta, has been assiduous in her efforts to help the prosecution and to damage the case of, of the defence. She has given all kinds of advantage to the prosecution to let them speak longer, to let them go on irrelevantly, and to suppress things that would harm their case when they are advanced by the defence. And this has been so regular, this has been so repetitive, that observers like Craig Murray uh, have been you know, really reduced to despair by this spectacle. And so for anyone to claim, as this senior opposition figure did when he spoke to me, 
a couple of weeks ago that this is the British justice system at work and we can't object to that because it's common law country is complete rubbish. It, it really is a total travesty. The only thing I can say about it is that if this is the British legal system at work, I would hate to see the cases of people coming before this magistrate who aren't prominent figures internationally like Julian. I mean, people about whom nobody knows or cares must get this treatment every day, one assumes. And if this is the British legal system, well, then it's, it's shameful. It's even more shameful that Australia, and they must be aware of what's going on, says nothing. By the way, no Australian uh, representative has been observed, at least uh, of, no official representative has been observed in the court. I may be wrong. The people I'm relying on for information might not necessarily recognise or be looking for Australians, but John Pilger is fairly certain that there are no Australian representatives of the government in the court. Yet they say he, Julian is getting all the consular assistance that he needs, like help. And yet there's international journalists, human rights activists in that court supporting Julian. Um, there are plenty of Australians outside, or rather every day there is a thin gathering of people outside that includes Australians. Whether there are Australians apart from you know, John Pilger inside the court, I don't know, because there are several rooms, do you see? As I was saying before, Craig Murray is inside the court itself, but then there are other rooms to which people are admitted who want to hear the proceedings. Now, there may be Australians there that I don't know about. Of course, John Shipton is inside, Julian's father. And, and so he is Australian. He has taken up residence in Britain ever since we knew that, that the case was going to go ahead against Julian. And he's supporting him every day. There are other members, I understand, of Julian's family who come and go. So there are Australians, but not official ones, as far as I can make out. I'm thinking more, Alison, about journalists and publishers from Australia yeah, who well, might have been there. Not that I have heard of. I think I saw somewhere that James Rickardson was talking about going, whether he went to London or whether he just visited and came back. It's pretty difficult to visit and come back at this time, difficult to travel anyway. But James Rickardson, who himself was locked up in Bangkok for a while uh, and accused of espionage, I think it was, and, and was got out by, with the help of the Australian government, uh, he has been a supporter of Assange and so has uh, Mark Davis and, uh, of course, Andrew Fowler, who has uh, written a book on the subject and, and it's in its third edition that's out now, bringing it up to date as far as he can. No doubt he'll do a fourth one after the trial. Um, my understanding is that neither Davis nor Fowler uh, is there on the spot. As I say, it's, it's difficult to be there. And also, it's not, I mean, you can, you can see what's going on, but some, as I say, some of the time it's, it's hard to even hear what's going on. And one of the other reasons that this uh, difficulty has occurred 
is that the magistrate, Barista, has decided that the proceedings are taking too long. And so although she allows the prosecution to read stuff into evidence that takes four hours, when witnesses for the defense are to appear, she says, oh, we'll just have the gist of their remarks read into evidence. They won't, they won't be able to be cross-examined. They won't be able to appear. These, the ones she won't allow include, for God's sake, Noam Chomsky, one of the most prominent uh, defenders that Julian could have. And she allows a gist, which means that the lawyers prepare a very short summary. They then read it into evidence. And the, this is done in a sort of a monotone, mumble, 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 which the public can barely hear and which has no impact on the court at all. Now, as one of the, I think probably it was Craig Murray or one of the other people who's been covering this for Consortium News, uh, remarked the whole point about a hearing in a court, in a public court, is that people ought to be able to hear and see what is going on. And, and having the sound of people's voices and the tone reduced in this way is clearly a travesty. One of the uh, other things that happened is that the uh, prosecution side has been running an American speaking to the prosecution and a British lawyer, both of them. And, the, and both of them have been extremely offensive to the defense witnesses. They've trivialized them. They've tried to impugn their respectability and their um, credentials for being expert witnesses. And they've talked them down and been very aggressive in their manner. And, and this has caused some of the defense witnesses to get quite rattled even when they're doing it by video link. And one of the problems that occurred was that one of the Americans got quite exasperated with being insulted in this way, and he started to be sarcastic in his, in his responses, like, oh, yeah, I know absolutely nothing about that. When he's a world authority. But what goes into the record, you see, is him saying, I, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't actually use those words, he said something like that, saying, Oh, I know nothing about that. And that will be read into the record, do you see? So these things are the techniques that are being used. And when this matter goes to appeal, as no doubt will be the next step, they'll be up against that sort of stuff. Now, when it goes to appeal, I do hope that, that Julian's defense team will get a little bit more energized than they have been. Occasionally, they're robust in, in defending their rights to, to speak and to, uh, and to challenge the prosecution, but a lot of the time, they're not. In, in other words, they are being oppressed by the magistrate herself into thinking, oh, we've got to hurry this thing. We've got to oblige her by cutting it short. We've got to allow the other side to go on and on while we can't, instead of objecting. They, they hardly object to anything. And one of the comparisons that I make between Julian's case 
And for instance, the defense of David Hicks, which was done by uh, Michael Morey, uh, an American barrister, who really got stuck into these proceedings and defended him vigorously, is that the defense is not doing that. And I would be very pleased if somebody like Michael Morey, an American, was defending Julian and was a lot less polite to both the magistrate and and the prosecution. Has there ever been the possibility that there could have been a jury for this hearing? I believe not. And I do think that if there had been a jury, the case would have been thrown out without any doubt. I mean, people sitting in a jury would just not cop this stuff. They would see the injustice that's being done. And there would be points made to them by the defence that they would not be able to resist, like the fact that Julian has been routinely spied upon in the Embassy of Ecuador by a Spanish security agency which passed all of their information to the CIA. Now, those were the grounds on which Daniel Ellsberg got off the charges for leaking the Pentagon Papers. He didn't get off because they found him not guilty for having done that. He clearly did it. He admitted he did it. He got off because they, in the CIA, at Nixon's orders, invigilated the offices of Ellsberg's psychiatrist and, and broke into records which they had no right to. Now, that's exactly what has happened in Julian's case. And if that was brought out before the court in front of the jury, I think the case would collapse immediately. Instead of that, what the magistrate has been able to do because she's sitting alone is she suppresses evidence that's inconvenient. And she says she won't hear this and she won't hear that. She won't hear, for instance, the German journalist who was sitting in a restaurant with Julian and others from The Guardian when it was alleged that he said he didn't care if people lost their lives over the leak of the uh, Afghan files. The German journalist said he never said such a thing. He was there. But two British authors, Luke Harding and David Lee, wrote a book saying he did. They were not there. It was hearsay. And yet that book has been quoted into evidence again and again and again. And they have not been called as witnesses, those two. Because it's a lie, and they don't want it revealed as a lie. And if that was done in front of a jury, the jury, the jury would be disgusted as well. Now, the, the German from, who used to work for the Siegel, who said this in the court, was cut short by the magistrate and not allowed to enter that statement into evidence. How do you like it? Well, finally, Alison... What to be done now to try and pressure this government to actually support one of its own citizens? That's exactly the right question, because it does seem to me that everything else has been tried. The law has not proved that it can defend an, a, an innocent person who is actually accused of nothing and guilty of nothing against governments who have killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, Julian has killed nobody. 
they have traded secrets and spied on other people. Julian has done nothing like that. So the, the injustice of the thing is so manifest. The only solution now, because the law isn't working, seems to me to be political, and the only way we could get political pressure to work on this would be if somebody in the Australian government had the courage to go to London and say to the Brits and go to Washington and say to the Americans, look, we are embarrassed and discomforted by this. We don't want one of our citizens to end up dead in prison, which is a likely prospect either sooner or later, and sooner is not beyond the bounds of possibility. If one of our politicians had the, had the moral fibre to go and do this, then we would see, we might see change. The only other uh, hope that I have is that uh, Trump gets defeated, a new government in the United States will not support what he has done in, in, as part of his hatred of everything Obama. Obama released Chelsea Manning and would not allow the case to proceed against Julian because of the freedom of the press. Now, if a Biden government uh, picked that up again, there might be some hope. I've been speaking with Dr. Alison Brontowski. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. At the weekend, I spoke with Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre. And, of course, Neil is also the Port Phillip Baykeeper. Neil, a number of issues, including looking further afield to the northern waterways of Melbourne. But I want to ask you first about the two ocean atmospheric phenomena La Nina and El Nino, which impact on one of the areas you're going to discuss a little later. What are the significances of these two phenomena? Well, the El Nino situation is um, the basics of it is when we have uh, much less rainfall in Australia, and so the drought period that we experience related to that. And, and the La Nina is the opposite effect, where we have much more intense rainfall and potentially flooding situations. And that's a, um, a pattern uh, that's influenced by the uh, currents from the Pacific Oceans and currents running from the east to cross to the west coast. So it actually pushes waters up against the Indo-Pacific region, warmer waters, and that creates, uh, that's for the La Nina, and that creates uh, more moisture in the atmosphere which then ultimately translates into rain. But interestingly, though, that the um, La Niñas also have cooler water temperatures, though, in the temperate waters down where we are in Victoria. So there's a couple of criteria to the Bureau of Meteorology to declare La Niña as happening, and one of them is that uh, the sea surface temperatures are about 0.8 of a degree lower than average uh, and that's currently the situation so the Bureau of Meteorology uh, made the declaration that there is a La Nina on uh, just last week I believe they said that uh, and we could be in for some uh, heavy rainfall and floods in uh, over the next little while. 
So it's not like in the next five years it's going to be one and then the next five years it's going to be another. It doesn't work like that. No, it's a little bit. A little bit of, uh, they, they say on average there's about every fourth year, but there can be a couple of years strung together in a row. So, for example, I think it was 2010 to 2012, there was a very wet period over the 24 months. And, in fact, they were the wettest 24 months ever in Australia's on record in Australia. But then uh, there might have been another couple of months in, say, 2016 and then nothing until this one coming up now. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's it's not something that, uh, that a date clicks over and say, oh, all right, that's it, we're, <laughs> we're switching off to La Nina or we're turning on the Aldino. It's a, bit, uh, a little bit fluid, for want of a better word, I suppose. Well, we're going to talk about jellyfish first. Now I've established that. Jellyfish in Port Phillip mm-hmm. Bay. Now, I've read that jellyfish are often seen swimming around Port Phillip Bay, especially as the water temperature increases. What sort of jellyfish jellyfish are we speaking about today? If we talk about the ones that are normally in the bay, there's the blue blubbers, which are probably the most common one, and typically they uh, are seen from, say, springtime through to around about Easter. And the cooler months, though, they uh, they disappear. And so the water temperature seems to be very much a limiting factor. But also during the um, winter period, too, there's less phytoplankton and things like that in the water, you know, so there's probably less food for them, too. So it makes sense that they don't rely on that period in the bay. Jellyfish we're talking about today, though, are a species which um, are normally found east of New Zealand and also in the Northern Hemisphere primarily. And their name, although we didn't get the actual species name, but the the, uh, type of jellyfish is aquora. There are about three or four different species and uh, they look kind of similar. So the photographs that I've seen and uh, other naturalists have seen, they haven't been able to actually nail down exactly which species they are, but they're certainly not normally found turning up in the boat. So the first time that um, I've ever heard about them being down Port Phillip Heads. So they're being brought down by the currents? Yes, there is a... Um, uh, like the La Nina situation that I mentioned before, that, that stronger easterly trade winds coming across from South America and North America, that turns down uh, and there's an East Australian current that turns to the left coming from the Coral Sea and down along the Australian coast down the past Sydney. And interestingly, I've learned that that current is actually increasing in strength as over the past 10 years or so. And some some years it comes down a bit further than others. So that would actually bring the jellyfish and also the blue bottles, which are another tropical jellyfish that, you know, we hear about them sort of fairly common up on the Queensland. Um, but there's a few of them have turned up too, like down in Port Phillip Bay. So what we're seeing is a changing sort of uh, situation where the East Australian current, it appears, is getting a bit stronger. And also some of the weather patterns, the cyclones and things like that are a bit more intense. So that's actually dispersing these species uh, much further than they generally would. 
So uh, the predictions are that that's going to continue over the next 100 years. I probably won't be here in another 90 years. So, Jan, will you? I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so so if there is a prediction, though, of a gradual increase in intensities of these weather patterns, etc., then there's more likely to be many more of these um, species that are a bit foreign, I suppose, for want of a better word, to our local region. Are there enough of them, Neil, to have implications for the creatures that are already there? Probably not, not certainly not at this stage. Uh, and because um, I, I suppose the key thing about these species that we're talking about, they're all sort of floating on the surface or just below the surface. So, uh, And it's only... Um, animals or organisms that are in that zone that they're going to be feeding on and so it's a pretty big area <laughs> the oceans so there's not any real uh, concern in that regard but I suppose from a, a point of view of our human interactions uh, this aquara uh, jellyfish has a mild sting which is thought to be uh, harmless to people so we don't have to worry about that um, whereas the blue bottles are much more sort of, uh, severe you know so um, there's that aspect, I suppose, we need to be thinking about. But what about in Port Phillip Bay? If you have extreme numbers coming in to Port Phillip Bay, the bay is actually um, uh, they have a bit, uh, according to the scientists. Um, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> scientists, all right, I'll stop joking. They have a, a bit of a limit in terms of the actual water temperatures that, that they survive in. You know, so uh, once they get down to around the bay and the temperatures down here, they're more or less right on the edge of their, their lower limit, you know. So uh, they probably wouldn't survive in the bay. What's happening with the spider crabs that we talked about last month? Uh, well, there is a consultation um, with fisheries, Victoria, uh, Victorian Fisheries Authority are running a consultation on up until the 27th. Uh, they're proposing that the catch limit be reduced from 30 to 15 spider crabs, uh, but there's still opposition from uh, the Spider Crabs Alliance, for example, are believing that's not really actually going to um, change the situation because uh, basically there's a, a view that there's a wider community interest in actually having the opportunity to enjoy the spectacle of all of those crabs coming in near shore and you know watching how they have the stingrays go for them and all that sort of thing, uh, rather than having it sort of soured a little bit, I suppose, a potential conflict with people there who are just taking an easy opportunity to catch the crabs. And, uh, uh, it's a, so it's a little bit of a, a situation that's a bit divisive, I suppose, in the community. So... The view that I'm taking is that we should be looking to create an event or a series of events around that aggregation of spider crabs coming into around Blairgowrie and Rye, which celebrates the nature of Moynton Peninsula and that really showcases the tourism opportunities and uh, those kind of things. And maybe having a seafood festival or something like that where uh, even the people who like to fish can enjoy and they've got there's something in it for them you know, in terms of their recreational opportunities. So we need to sit down and talk. <laughs> so what you've heard, Neil, are, are the less people out fishing and 
doing those sorts of things during this COVID time because people can't travel as far? Uh, yeah, I guess um, that's certainly would be the case. Um, not, not too sure or how much. Oh, there's probably a little bit of a drop in recreational angling in the middle of the year anyway. You know, so for example, the snapper don't start running until the next few weeks or so. You know, so um, yeah, there are bits of peaks and drop anyway in in terms of recreational angling. But uh, yeah, it's nice, I suppose, for nature to have a little rest from uh, people getting out and about all over the place. What about the staff at the Eco Centre? I'm thinking of the educational programs where you've got schools open, schools shut schools open. How does that work in with your programs to educate the younger people about the bay and, and its surrounds? Well, it's uh, interesting, you know, that we've actually had really a massive engagement with whole lots of students through Zoom, you know, so the, the online sort of interactions have proven to be really uh, uh, great interest because people are sort of locked down and they're looking for opportunities to learn and, you know, and uh, engage. So um, our education team has been going gangbusters in that regard and uh, had, you know, quite a huge interaction. So it's all been, you know, not, not, at, at all a, um, a downturn for us. You haven't been able to spend as much time as you would have liked to be down in that part of Melbourne, down by the, the bay? More uh, in... No. That's right. I'm saying yes, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you're more in the northern suburbs at the moment. What are the issues that you're finding around the creeks and the rivers in the northern area? Yeah, well, uh, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I live only probably 10 minutes walk from Darabin Creek up uh, in Reservoir. It's been really interesting. You know, I've actually moved up here relatively recently, so I've had a, a good chance to uh, to get to know the creek and uh, see the, the interesting positives and in the nature in it. Um, there's quite a lot of life in this particular section of the creek. And as, uh, I've been looking at Rakali and uh, the water rats, um Hard to catch them because, uh, interestingly, the creek flows very fast up here because uh, we're actually not that far from the highest point in Melbourne. So as it comes down the water, it comes down the creek. It moves pretty quick and the Rakali <laughs> go quick with it. But, um, yeah, so I've uh, discovered that there are freshwater mussels in the creek that the Rakali feed on. Uh, there's yabbies too. I've seen a little hide cormorant uh, catching one and... Uh, uh, but there are also other threats. So, for example, there's a diesel slip on the creek that um, covered probably around about three or 400 metres on one occasion. And there's an industrial plant on the eastern side that's actually some milky, murky stuff came out on another occasion. You know, so there's a few things like that. But also um, uh, there's a situation up on Plenty Road where uh, an astroturf hockey pitches being torn up and replaced and uh, the potential that's quite near the creek as well and so I'm um, keeping an eye on that uh, with the aim of trying to come up with some advocacy around better measures to prevent fragments of plastics uh, escaping from those kind of work sites. That's I suppose a, a major issue for Melbourne generally um, that with the 
urban consolidation, a lot of flats and things like that being constructed building sites uh, that often use uh, things like polystyrene pods uh, in the wall structures. Uh, and those sort of polystyrenes are actually cut on site and fragments of polystyrene fly off into the into the street and then into the stormwater drain. So there's a whole range of sources of um, plastic pollutants, I suppose, that we're interested in seeing if we can get better managed and better handled. You can't be too far from the Merry Creek either, would you? Uh, well, I haven't actually um, worked that out, but yeah, probably only a couple of kilometres. Uh, the Edgar's Creek, so there's quite a few different, uh, and yes, it's, there's lots of urban waterways, and we're very lucky in Melbourne to have those. Uh, there, as I mean, they're great places to just go and relax and you know rejuvenate your spirit a little bit. And uh, you know, there's also obviously with the, the nature, the trees and things like that, we've got lots of birds, and you know, so um, we're very fortunate in that regard. It's, in, in Melbourne generally to have them as a as a, a recreational resource. And also a lot of friends of the different areas that have been working for many years. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's you know, a few little native grassland patches that are, you know, remnants of the original landscape as well. So, and they're yeah, terrific people who are out to uh, look after those areas and to try and expand on them and extend them. So, and also, a lot of people are very um, passionate about cleaning up litter and plastics out of the creeks too, which is fantastic because uh, that's sort of what it all goes to the bay. So, um, we're, we're just the Portfolio Echo Centre is just about to publish our report on the Mantanet trawls that we've been doing in the Yarra and Maribyrnong for the last three years, and. Uh, we're hopeful that this at last we're going to break through the kind of, oh, it's hard to say, I can't say it's a kind of silence <laughs> or um, people are just turning away, but uh, it seems uh, that many, that microplastics and plastic pollution hasn't quite registered with a number of organisations yet because, largely because it's unseen, it's so small that people, you just, you know, the creek looks pretty clean to me. But, you know, when you actually do uh, a bit more of a forensic investigation, it's quite staggering just how much plastics in small particles are actually in our waterways. And all of those creeks that you've mentioned, the Edgars, the Mary, the Darwin, they all end up in the Yarra? Uh, well, ultimately, yeah. So uh, there might be, you know, there'll be others though that perhaps go into the Maribyrnong too. So yeah, the two the two major rivers though ultimately have a number of tributaries coming into them. And uh, the other bigger issue, well, not bigger, but uh, huge issue really is, of course, the uh, uh, the industrial fires and the fire water that escapes into, potentially into the creeks when those fires are being uh, combated, you know, the um, fire retardant foams that are used for chemical contaminations in them, which are not good. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of uh, industrial and chemical contamination that uh, are issues for those natural waterways too. And uh, there's a lot of good people over who are doing some very solid work on trying to um, put things in place to make sure that uh, the creeks are looked after properly. Is there also work in progress to 
change the type of chemicals that they use in these fires, factory fires, etc., that they won't be so toxic on the on the waterways? Not that I'm aware of, Jan. So uh, there probably is some work on that, but I mean that's a bit like a, um, a vaccine for COVID. Really, it's still in the distance, I guess. So uh, in in the medium or short to medium term, the, the efforts need to go into ensuring that the water doesn't escape into the waterways in the first place and see if it can be contained on site. That's it's, not always going to be possible, but that's you know the best possible thing to try and focus on at this stage. Or just make sure that the fires don't start. Exactly. <laughs> so, Another, yeah, so we've got to think, stop these at the source. Another unwelcome side effects of COVID is the closure of cafes and restaurants and people only able to buy takeaways. And we have now a plethora of takeaway containers, much more than we used to have before. Yes, that uh, definitely would be the case. Uh, although, you know, that would be interesting to know whether... It, would be much more than before, or whether there still there hasn't quite been the same level of consumption as there was before. But yeah, I, I have seen um, takeaway containers around, but yeah, I'm not wouldn't say necessarily that there was much more than before. Are there any places where you're able to take your own containers, or they say that's a health risk? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose it is um, a bit problematic at the moment because uh, you need to sort of be at arm's length, I suppose, from, uh, uh, you know, if, if people are bringing their own cups and things in and that cup's going to be put down on a coffee dispenser or something like that, and potentially uh, you know, there, there has been some recent uh, revelations or that... Um, that the COVID virus can actually uh, remain viable on hard surfaces for relatively long periods of time, you know. So I think I heard 28 days was one possibility. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit problematic. Uh, uh, so, but and in that case, if people are just going to be using takeaway containers, then they just need to make sure that they dispose of them correctly. Bayside Council's acting on beach erosion. Apparently it's becoming very widespread now, not only round the bay, but also out of the bay. Yes, well, uh, again, um, you know, they, uh, it, it sort of ties in a little bit with the, the weather patterns in the La Nina and the stronger currents and things like that too, That uh, particularly the cyclones and things up in the northern part of um, Australia. And uh, I know um, New South Wales too, you know, we're getting really battered the coast there. Um, but yeah, if there are stronger winds and wave action, that's ultimately what's going to take the sand away from the beaches and uh, uh, combine that with um, incrementally higher sea levels. And that, um, ultimately the higher tides are going to be a bit higher than usual and that, that will eat away at the beaches. So it's been happening for quite some time, but uh, hopefully... Um, you know, there's no silver bullet for that. We need to address the whole topic of climate change and the causes of um, greenhouse gases. But uh, uh, we also need to be looking at other adaptations, I guess, in terms of putting in 
maybe offshore reefs that actually help to in, uh, uh, prevent the wave attack or the ener- wave energy from hitting beaches as strongly and also creating sheltered spots where the sand will accumulate and, and, and remain rather than just being washed away. Well, at this time, Neil, we've been in lockdown now in one sense or another for many months. What enthuses you at the moment about the environment? Well, it's always um, got lots to be happy. I mean, I'm, another fortunate thing down by the creek is that uh, there's a thorny frogmouth nest down there. And so I'm um, uh, keeping an eye on that. Uh, you know, it's they're fascinating birds, really. And, uh, you know, so it's just... To know that nature still exists in relatively you know, tough times, and that that in itself is kind of inspiring, really. You know, it's it's good to see that it's there, and uh, and, and if we can do things to actually help to maintain its foothold, well, then that's a good thing to do. So, yeah. Talk a bit more about the, the native animals around the creeks that are doing okay at the moment. I know they're there, but sometimes you don't see them that much too. Uh, um, so, but the rakali or the, the native water rat, you know, uh, they're, they're definitely around. But um, uh, they actually have a fairly wide range. I believe they can travel, you know, three to four kilometres in a day. So it's just so they don't sort of hang about in a very localised area. Uh, but one of the things I'm been also interested in is is uh, a grey mistletoe, which um, is a plant which, uh, like a parasitic plant, that attaches itself to wattle trees along the creek. And uh, I'm sort of interested to see which particular birds are actually associated with that mistletoe. It's starting to flower at the moment. And I have seen uh, a couple of new Holland honey eaters uh, in them, you know. So, uh, but um, the, it's believed, though, that... Uh, seeds of mistletoes, there's a couple of the native species of mistletoes, that the seeds are actually dispersed by mistletoe birds uh, and so they actually uh, uh, when they eat the fruit, they carry the seed which is quite a bit of a, uh, a glue or a gummy sort of a surface on it and they, they place that on branches of trees and that ultimately turns into a new mistletoe you know? so that's fascinating stuff not likely to see platypus on the Darabin Creek? Uh, well, actually, the, um, there has been uh, a study just initiated in the last week or two through the uh, Darabin Creek Management Committee where they're doing a um, platypus DNA study where they can actually take samples of water and uh, check for the DNA uh, traces of different animals. So unfortunately, I didn't get to attend that one to see exactly how they do it, but that's something that just happened in the, very recently. You know, I suppose it's always a possibility, but um, what can, it does concern me, though, is when you have these things like diesel spills and that sort of stuff, you just wonder what impact that actually has on um, the chances of, of animals surviving that. And the other thing that's of interest too, as I mentioned, the strong water currents before, uh, often those really, because the creeks are relatively channelised, and so when you get a, a, a flush of water coming down them, they're travelling pretty fast, and they can actually wash away a lot of nutrients and food and 
<laughs> and animals too. You know, so uh, there's those factors there too that are natural processes that might be limiting on what species can actually survive here. But a report card on the Darabin Creek, you're pretty positive? Oh, yeah, well, I definitely, um, you know, uh, I'm looking at how it's... Uh, there's a good book, I think, that the Darabin Creek Management Committee um, published a few years ago, and, uh, you know, it, it obviously was going through tough times, you know, back in the mid-50s or so last last century, and uh, for a whole range of reasons, including, uh, you know, apart from uh, in chemicals and industrial kind of... Uh, effluent going down the creeks rather than being diverted to the sewer system as it is now and that's only been since the 1970s I think that um, that those chemicals were actually stopped from being put into into the creeks. The other one though which you don't see these days Jan is that every boy used to have a Shanghai and <laughs> they'd be firing shooting anything that moved or even stood still you know? so uh, there's that aspect too but the cultural thing that's changed it's probably for the best I should hope so <laughs> thank you Neil <laughs> thank you Jan I was speaking there with Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre and he's also the Port Phillip A-keeper Hello, this is Dan Salton, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne. In response to the public health emergency, that is COVID-19, states across Australia have enacted new laws and the declaration of states of emergency with severe restrictions on civil liberties and brought in unprecedented police powers. Governments have expanded the role of police not only to uphold pre-existing laws, but also to enforce new public health directions. But it is argued that laws increasing police powers must also include safeguards that will ensure that they are clearly expressed and narrowly confined, but should also be time-based and regularly reviewed so that when the public health crisis ends, so do the powers. I'm speaking today with Debbie Brennan from the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women, about these important health and police issues. Debbie, some of the restrictions have been released as of yesterday, but let's look back at what's been happening here in Victoria over the past months. What we've been living under since August is a state of danger, but even before that, can you go through not only the restrictions, but what the role of the police has been and continues to be? Yes, I think that's a really crucial point because, as you're saying, COVID safety is and, and policing are two very conflicting things. In that state of danger, which I believe was um, imposed in early August, this is when, well, we, we could go beyond 5K of our homes we could only go out once a day and even then for an hour and very restricted activity that we could do. We had to have permits to go to work. Those permits, by the way, were not necessarily easy for a lot of workers to get. We learned that um, CCTVs were being set up in parks and 
everywhere else to monitor us. We've had drones flying over us. We've even had, you know, trackers of our car license plates to make sure that we stuck within 5K and so on. So, and meanwhile, the, the police were the arbiters of what was considered a breach or not. So we have these incredibly horrific incidents of, uh, for example, a young woman who had a medical reason for not wearing a mask and they, you know, they saw her walking down the street, chokeholded her, threw her to the ground and so on. And of course, we have not forgotten a little bit before that, the, the raiding and the occupation of the public housing estate. So it's just been full on. This is what I think, you know, things boil down to, like COVID public health measures are important. They must be scientifically based and they must be consistently applied. We support, you know, regulations about numbers and safety measures, about socializing. It could be about weddings, religious ceremonies, outdoor dining, whatever it may be. But they should also apply to protests. They should be consistently applied to be safe. I'll go into just some examples that I'm sure some listeners are probably familiar with. For example, the Refugee Action Collective, which organized a very safe protest outside the Mantra Hotel where refugees are incarcerated, they organized a car convoy to be totally safe and responsible within COVID safety measures. And yet, the organize, one of the organizers of that protest, Chris Breen, was arrested and charged with incitement to incite people to breach public health regulations, apparently. And that's a serious criminal offense. So he's facing that charge for that very safe protest. We have in New South Wales, by the way, which is another hot spot of civil liberties crackdown, you've got a New South Wales government that allows up to 40,000 people to attend a National Rugby League Grand Final while it sends cops on horses to Sydney University against 30 students and staff who are holding an outdoor protest against the cuts to higher education. I think that that's showing um, very clearly not only an inconsistency, but the, the danger, as you said, to civil liberties and there are two things that I think highlight what's going on here in Victoria about where health actually fits in the order of government priorities. So this last Saturday, the day before the new announcements by Dan Andrews, new laws were enacted so that protective service uh, security officers can now be patrolling shopping centers, sporting precincts, other places with high numbers of people, and these places are now deemed to be designated places. Now, any of us who have been to uh, protests in the past know that a designated area 
is where police can stop and search you. They can arrest you. I mean, to, to designate an area means that anybody there is open to that. Meanwhile, we just hear on ABC radio that as at the 27th of March, the Victorian Department of Health had one full-time person working in the role of infection protection and control. Now, just compare those two things about the massive resourcing of policing and imprisonment on the one hand, our budgets sending billions into that, and on the other hand, we find the privatization, the outsourcing, the underfunding of public health and the public sector in general. So I think that's telling us a lot about the priorities of government and where where things lie. And it makes us ask the question, why aren't our neighborhoods swarming with health workers instead of police? Why aren't health facilities set up and actively working in our neighborhoods instead of CCTVs and drones? And the answer, I think, becomes pretty clear that police are the physical enforcers of the status quo. And, of course, that status quo is profit. So these COVID measures are not about community health and safety. They're about control. And it's not a coincidence that this is happening in hard, hard economic times when a recession is full-blown, that COVID is, is, of course, exacerbating. And it's about the quashing of dissent. So that's what this is about. And we have the government prior to this saying to the police, whatever you ask for, you can have. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's all under the guise of COVID safety. So COVID safety has been used as the pretext for cracking down on our civil liberties. I'd like to focus on the role of the mass media in conjunction with the police over the last months. Can you yeah. talk about that? Well, just to say that we've been bombarded with the line that all of this is for COVID safety. And who are the ones who are always the get-go for the mainstream media to speak, but the police commissioner or or someone? That's basically what we're told. And so we're made to understand that people cannot be trusted to do the right thing. That's why we have to be policed, because we're basically recalcitrants who think only of ourselves. Um, we're also told that protests are dangerous because, again, protesters are irresponsible. That's what we're told. That's the message that's always out there in the mainstream media. But, in fact, when you look at it, if we look at, for example, in early June, the Black Lives Matter protest, which was more than 20,000 people, which was so carefully organized by the organizers and, and everyone who went there took this very seriously because we are very responsible about public health. 
we went there in our masks with our sanitizers. We we kept our distance. It was probably one of the most the safest things around. Absolutely no infections came out of that protest. The Department of Health said as such, and yet the lie kept going out on the mainstream media that that protest caused a hike in infections. So there's not only the lying, but there's the lie. To me, the safest demonstration was that demonstration outside the mantra in Preston. You mentioned Crispine being charged. But the people who were protesting were actually in their cars, one or two in a car, or only one in a car. They had all their protection on. The cars kept away from each other, but every one of those people were fined. That's exactly right. Also, more recently, the Refugee Action Collective was organising another safe protest, And what they were organizing was to have only two people standing at any one time, of course, 1.5 meters apart, and, of course, being within 5Ks of their home. And yet the police still warned them that if they did that, they would be prosecuted because they would be holding placards. So, in other words, any political protest It can be as COVID-safe as it wants to be, but it is going to be prosecuted. And it's not only increased powers for the police. As you said, it's increased powers for the PSOs. Well, they are now police. So that new law that came into place this past Saturday on the 17th of October has empowered PSOs to work with the police, with those same policing powers. That's correct. And what training do they get? My understanding from what I've read, and I've read this from uh, legal advisors, community legal advisors, that they get minimal training. It's only a few hours of training. And I think a lot of us can recall a lot of pretty shocking incidents of how PSOs have treated people on the metro, people of color, people who are homeless, young people. We have seen them grappling people to the ground. They have a very poor record of, uh, well, customer service, if we want to put it that way. When there are laws like these, you need safeguards. Are there any safeguards at all? There are none that I know of. And again, I've been reading concerns coming out of the community uh, legal monitors that who are saying that when people have appealed to actions taken by police, description of the police interpret the regulations, no appeal has been successful. So it just seems that there are no safeguards that we've got. There's no end in sight to this, is there, Debbie? Because 
to me, you've only got to have a slight increase in numbers and the restrictions will be put back on again. Is that how you see it? Oh, I think so. I think um, they're just ready to be put back on. And this is where I think what we hear in our ordinary ordinary people like us, we need to start organizing. If we don't, we are going to permanently lose our civil liberties. And there are some things that we can be doing. Um, I think the first thing is got to stop looking to the government because we know exactly what the government answers are. And we've got to start looking to ourselves. And we've got to start acting independently in our own name. And there are just some starting demands. It's hardly comprehensive list. There are a lot of things that we can be doing. But just to start with, Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women are suggesting three main things. First, to call for the slashing of the funding to police and to disarm the police and redirect that funding to provide free quality public health to kick the police out of the union movement. The police are there to serve one entity and that entity is state, and that state is capitalist state. So they're there to enforce the status quo, the interests of profit. They should be kicked out of the union movement. And uh, because they're actually holding back the union movement in doing what the union movement should really, which is to be out there on the streets fighting for everyone's rights. Third is to establish a loose review board that would be elected controlled by the community and with powers to investigate police, discipline them, prosecute them, sack them. And in fact, these are very doable demands because they've got a lot of traction in the United States. We certainly know it's going down in the United States now. But all three of those things have um, been highly successful. For example, in Seattle, the Martin Luther King Labor Council booted out the police from that Labor Council. In New York, the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women have been involved in a very broad coalition that's made a lot of headway in establishing a community-elected and controlled civilian police review board. Slashing the funds of police, disarming the police, that's a campaign that's going on in various places around the United States, and we're involved in that in San Francisco. So these are things that are being fought for already, and uh, there has been some pretty impressive progress. So there are important things, and in fighting for them, we ourselves, it's uplifting, actually, and it's something that makes us understand that we do have power. And if we do organize around very clear demands from below. So we need to start doing that. Just finally on this issue, Debbie, you'll have people saying, well, if you don't stick to the rules, if you don't do what the government tells you, 
will have huge numbers of coronavirus cases. Look, just look around the world. Around the world, there's 400,000 new cases in just one day at the weekend. What's your answer to that? My answer is that's not true. We only need to be looking at every protest so far, well, before they were shut down in Victoria, and no infections have come from them. And that's a reason for that. The reason is that when we get out into the streets to protest around these very vital issues, we do it responsibly because we do respect public health. We know the importance of public health and we take every single measure to ensure that we will not infect ourselves, each other, or the general public. So you can have safe protest. We've seen it. It's been proven. That argument just does not hold water. Shift the focus to the U.S. since the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the imminent filling of her seat on the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett. The main concern is the overturning of the 1973 landmark decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution protects a woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restrictions. Abortion rights have always been an issue for activists here in Australia too, haven't they, for decades? Yes. When we talk about Amy Connie Barrett, there are other dangers as well. So that when we look at Barrett, what we're looking at is a of the far-right of the Supreme Court. Vision on abortion, you just outlined. But she also has a broader racist anti-worker position. In fact, on the federal bench, every decision that she has made being a ruling of hers just last August on a class action by workers against drivers of um, for a company called Grubhub. She ruled against them by saying that they were not a class of workers, therefore it was not a class action lawsuit. Uh, she also favors denying green cards to undocumented immigrants. And she has also ruled against victims of sexual assault on campus. So she's got a pretty broad record. The thing we need to know about um, Barrett is that she is a member of a hard right, very secretive Catholic group called People of Praise. Now that group believes in very extreme gender roles and that they call for high-ranking women, like Barrett, they call them handmaids. They use the word handmaids. She's happy, of course, to be a handmaid for the far-right institution and Trump. They also expel gay members. This is Barrett. She's also a member of another far-right organization called the Federalist Society, this has ties with the, the Koch brothers, 
uh, the billionaires over there who fund the far right. And the Federalist Society grooms conservative lawyers and judges. She's very well entrenched in the far right movement. So the important thing about the Supreme Court is that she's very likely going to be voted in. But the Supreme Court is not the be-all and end-all of all of this. What it's telling people on the ground in the United States is that they've got to hit the streets. They need to organize in the streets. By doing that, they've actually affected court decisions in the past, such as Roe versus Wade, such as marriage equality. So what really counts is what's in the streets. And in fact, people have hit the streets. Just this past weekend, there have been women's marches across the country. And there have also been demos against the the layoffs of workers. There have been counter rallies in San Francisco, a huge one against the Proud Boys, the fascist Proud Boys. So on many fronts, there's a lot of organizing, um, just amazing action happening over there. And I think that, that Barrett fits into that picture. The second issue we're focusing on is you took part in a Zoom meeting at the weekend. What was that about? Yes, that Zoom meeting was about the U.S. elections, and we had the privilege of McGon Cornish from Seattle, from Freedom Socialist Party in Seattle, to come and join us. And she talked about the U.S. elections, and we had a very lively, interactive discussion. So... She was saying that with the Republicans and the Democrats, the the uh, contest over there, she was making the point that elections are seen as democracy at work. I think a lot of this relates to us because it's very similar. We actually, elections are, are drummed up as democracy at work. But she was saying that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are a party for working people. So she was talking about how Biden, for example, opposes Medicare for all. He's very close to the oil and gas companies. Kamala Harris herself is very pro-police. As Attorney General of California, she's incarcerated people. So the Democrats are not an alternative to the Republicans. They're they they pretty much serve. In fact, they exactly serve the same um, capital that, that the Republicans do. So we were talking even more broadly about the context of this election and the fact that in the United States, things have become very, very polarized. And so we have a growing far right, such as we've just been talking about with the Supreme Court. And, of course, that growing far right is getting a lot of help from Trump. But on the other hand, there has been a growing resistance on the ground. And 
this past weekend has just been a perfect example. Those protests that I was mentioning earlier over various issues. And Magan was also telling us that those uprisings against the police in particular have been bringing together black Americans and workers as a whole. And in fact, this in itself is showing a great potential for confronting the system. And she was telling us how the movements over there over the past, you know, 50 years at least, have been building on each other. Nagan herself comes from the movements of the 1960s that radicalized her. And there is like a continuum of movements. They wax and wane, but they do build on each other. And you see this really coming to a crescendo over there. There is a possibility that, of course, if Trump loses the election, that he will refuse to leave. The worst-case scenario is that, effectively, a civil war could happen, and this is when people really do need to hit the streets and also hold a general strike. This is where the union movement has a crucial role to play just as the union movement here has a crucial role to play. And they've really got to pick up, step up to that crucial role. In fact, on that point, the uh, Rochester AFL-CIO, like their equivalent of ACTU, the Rochester chapter of the AFL-CIO, which has, which has 70,000 members, actually recently passed a resolution that if Trump loses and he refuses to go, that the union movement must call a general strike. So that's really very, very promising to see that at the bottom level, unionists are actually organizing around these kinds of calls. We were also talking about how rebellion, which of course is happening, needs to move move on and move forward into a unity around clear demands. And it's to be forming as a united front that we need to to unite around common clear demands and start organizing independently as a working class. And again, this is where the union movement is important because it's through our unions, that we are organized as working people from all social movements, and we're capable of taking very disciplined action. The other important part of that uh, discussion that we had on Saturday was how this is international. We can talk about the U.S. elections, but that's not just a U.S. issue. And in fact, everyone who was part of it from here was making that point that it's important to us what happens in the United States. Magan was saying that likewise, it's important to working people in the United States what happens elsewhere. And she was referring to the powerful resistance coming out of Latin America, for example, and the Middle East and Northern Africa and, and so on, that 
in the United States, they're inspired by what happens elsewhere in the world because we're all facing essentially the same issues. And that's no surprise because, after all, capitalism is global. So we did talk about an interdependence of these struggles wherever we may be because we understand the struggle of somewhere else because we're facing the same struggles where we are. So that was pretty much the the discussion. And uh, when you mention Seattle, well, over the weekend, Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women were busy as anything going to, you know, the Women's March. They've also been very, very active with our members in uh, Portland, Oregon, because that's certainly been a, a hotbed of resisting, you know, fascist organizing. So, yes, things are happening, and we can certainly not only be learning from the organizing over there, but we can be we can be taking heart from that and uh, be doing our own organizing over here. Did the discussion include? or how to deal with the police? Yes, the discussion was very similar to what um, we've been talking about already in this interview. So handling the police is about slashing their funds and disarming them. It's about setting up community-controlled elected civilian review boards and kicking them out of the union movement. The other thing that's being talked about over there is the importance of preparing for self-defense because people there on the ground, we only need to watch the news from over there, are being set upon by police and the far right, well, which work hand in hand, of course. So, um, and of course, they're being killed. So they're not just being pepper sprayed, they're being killed. So self-defense is actually becoming an issue over there. And it's something that was talked about on Saturday as how to deal with both the police and the far right. It's becoming an immediate urgency so that's all part and parcel of the importance of coalescing united fronts over there and organizing seriously, independently, independently of the Democrats. And that means that the union movement is going to have to break from the Democrats and organize on the ground with workers. And you can see those connections here with Australia as well. Absolutely, absolutely. The union movement here has to break with the ALP and needs to be revitalizing itself. I keep remembering back to the Builders Laborers Federation as just one example and what was achieved by a union that actually takes up social issues and is not afraid to and will do so militantly. And look at what was achieved, such as green bands, as one example. Well, we need to be achieving that and much, much, much more. So 
that's how we're going to be able to organize independently and powerfully because we do have the power. We just have to know we do and we have to uh, harness that power and exercise that power. And it goes back to what we were talking about originally, which is if we don't, we are going to lose our civil liberties. So if you don't fight, you lose. I've been speaking with Debbie Brennan from the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.